0: Welcome to a Media Voices special, everybody. This week, we're going to be taking a look at all the findings from the digital news reports. Now, every year, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism puts this out, and it is always a banner moment in the media analysis calendar. And this year in particular, there's so many interesting insights in there that we thought, well, why don't we actually take a look, uh, pick out some of the things that we think are most relevant and most important for our audience, and really do a bit of a deep dive into them. I'm Chris
1: Sutcliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe.
1: And I'm Peter Houston.
2: But before we get into that, I just want to remind you that last Wednesday we released another Conversations episode with Afino. So CEO Marcus Carlson and TTG Media's Steve Hines talked to me about the benefits of software systems consolidation, why it's so important for data compliance, and how publishers can help bring teams on board with the process as well. So do give that a listen. If you're listening in a podcast app, you should be able to find that just before this episode here, or you can find it on our website, voices.media.
1: Well, freshly back from Portugal, I've just had time to wash my uh, shorts before heading off to Cannes. I've never been to Cannes before, so I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> but we're uh, <clears throat> recording a couple of episodes at Cannes in association with our wonderful sponsor, Sovereign. Uh, we're going to be getting some of the views from Cannes on Tuesday and Wednesday next week.
2: You're going to have such a good suntan by the end
0: of this month. It's going to be ridiculous. (laughs) So excited. (laughs)
1: Actually, (laughs) if this is Monday and anyone that's listening who's going to be in Cannes, come and find us. Find me? Sorry, these guys aren't going. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Livid. But before Peter starts working on his tan, we're going to get into our main story, which is examining all the key findings from the Reuters report. So the digital news report, as we said, has really unpicked a lot of things that they believe are most important to publishers this year. And the headline for, well, pretty much everybody I've seen talking about this has been the stats that they've surfaced around news avoidance, which is indelibly linked with trust in news falling pretty much across the board. So, Peter, because you're going to count, I'm going to give you the tricky task to begin with, of explaining some of these disappointing and worrying stats around news avoidance.
1: Explaining them. Actually, before we start, (laughs) um, it's, it's really worth saying that although this is a news report, the findings really do apply to publishers generally. Um, I mean, there's ni- they they've ninety thousand consumers they surveyed for this thing in forty six countries. It's amazing. I don't know how big the team is, but they must work so hard on this.
0: Oh, yeah, one hundred percent.
1: Turns out that almost forty percent of people all around the world um, often or sometimes at least avoid the news.
0: Now, this is um, we need to be clear about this. This is not like distrusts the news that they see. This is actively strives. Mm-hmm to avoid any sort of news consumption. Now, that is potentially a massive... That has going to have an impact on governance, on democracy, on the ability to hold power to account, everything, the primacy of news organisations. That is a horrifying stat.
2: Can I hold my hand up and say I think I'm one of
1: these people? I think we all are.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, can you blame the public for this? Because I think that we all do. I said on Twitter when this stat came out, "I I do that too. I do exactly
1: that. Well, the point's not, can you blame the public? It doesn't matter if you blame the public or not. It won't change anything. So the issue is to find out why, what's going on.
2: Well, I think they, they asked, I mean, I know I know Twitter's very self selecting but they asked a lot of the people, and it's basically the last, and, and this reflects my personal experience, the last two or three years have been so intense yeah. in terms of the news. Like, I can remember being glued to the COVID briefings, and I think I think sometimes we we we're sort of we're striving to get back to to normal. And I think there's going to be a huge reckoning in terms of mental health and the impact the last few years have actually had on us. It's going to I mean it's starting to really catch up.
0: Yeah, I mean we saw that with you know John Crowley and that did that for journalists, but like you're saying for the public,
2: this is just one of the ways it's manifesting. Like you, you look at some of the issues that come up with teenagers, and, and suddenly their mental health is just absolutely cliff edged, and we almost need like. I, think I I don't know what you do to fix it. Like, but I think we need to start by recognizing the impact that the last two years have, have had on people. And I, I don't necessarily think this is a, like it's not a bad thing for news organisations. But it's not that people are being irresponsible by suddenly not seeking out the news. It, no. it's a it's a protectionist move. Absolutely, like I get to stage. I, I I can't. I just can't look at it anymore.
0: Yeah, it's my job, and I and I feel that way sometimes. But <laughs> I, th- I think to some extent, this is a rod that some publishers have made for their own backs because the economies of digital news mean that you do have to be as emotive as evocative as possible and as soon as we ran into a situation where you know there were real world consequences all of a sudden it became too much so it's on the one hand it is absolutely vital that the public stays informed on the other hand can you blame them for choosing to protect themselves
1: it's it's worse than you actually just described, Esther, because this didn't start a couple of years ago. This started in 2016. The numbers started to change. It's doubled since 2016. What happened in Britain in 2016 <laughs> where 46% of people in the UK... The UK is, what, the worst in this whole survey,
0: right? 46% of people in the UK now actively avoid the news.
1: And what happened in 2016 was Brexit.
0: Yeah. Well, sure, ha- okay, so hang on, hang on, hang,
1: rela- on, hang on. And Trump, I guess. Yeah,
0: but I was going to say that that to me seems like that's the obvious cause and effect, but the actual run-up to Brexit was when a lot of those very um, contentious issues started to emerge in the news. So you kind of, the rise yeah, of Yeah, but the at what point
1: Ryan. did 48% of people just <laughs> give up and not want to hear it anymore? Well,
0: that's true. And 55% of avoiders in the UK said that the news has... A negative effect on their mood. That seems like a low stat to me. Fifty five percent
1: also seems like quite unmailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I feel this, is a, this news is making me feel a little bit. Down. But
2: I, I, I wonder as well if this if this has coincided with the rise of sort of the availability of news in that everybody's now got you know the news news apps in their phone. Um, a lot of it comes through social media, and whereas you might have once sort of switched on the ten o'clock news and that was your that you know you caught up on the news for the day. It's just constant now, and if you get push yeah. notifications from news publishers, it's like every every sort of hour, there's there's something else, and it gets to that it's it's all bad news, and there's no there's nothing you can do about it, there's nothing you can enact about it, and why bother listening at that point?
0: Exactly, but I, it would be interesting to chart that with the rise of, say, the email newsletter, which actually made things digestible again. Like there's a a bit of a um. But potentially, that's self protectionism as well. Is people going, I just want to get it in 10 minutes at the start of the day and then not have to get bombarded with stuff. Yeah. Um, you can chart that as well with the kind of the, the fall in interest in rolling news channels, um, just the ability of people to switch off in a lot of cases. If they can, they will.
1: I saw a presentation in, in Portugal at the FIP Congress from the Daily Mail um, talking about Mail Plus development and they've moved to this three three updates a day edition yeah. thing for their paid thing. Well, you know, we can argue all day long about the Daily Mail and where it comes from and blah, 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 blah but we shouldn't. But, you know, from a functional organizational point of view, uh, that shift to finite, finishable news, I think is is definitely a trend that we're going to see more of.
0: Yeah. So where this is, I suppose, more worrying for publishers is that it's younger audiences that are choosing to avoid more than anybody else. And that, I think, is bound up with this lack of trust that younger audiences have. So they trust the news, least of all cohorts. And you can argue that there's a chicken and egg discussion to be had about whether that's because of populists on both sides decrying the news en masse, or whether that is, you know, something an existing trend that those populists have jumped on as well. But The the trust crisis now is, you know, we've been talking about it for so long, it's so endemic that I almost don't know what we do to arrest that fall amid this news avoidance. How do you convince people to trust you when they're actively avoiding contact with you?
1: I don't think that's solely a publisher's issue. I think that's a societal issue. You know, when you live in a country, and I mean, we can speak about the UK, but the same thing applies to the US and to, to Europe. When you live in a country where the government is actively undermining the legal process and trusting lawyers, when they're actively undermining trust in public broadcasters like the BBC, mm. actively undermining the press, not inviting people on into meetings... That's a huge part of this. It
0: is, it is. And it,
1: and, and the, 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 what the what's it, they call it, wedge politics. The divisive way that they set up every political issue so that there's two sides. You know, if you're like, I'm going to talk a little bit more about young people later, but if you're a young person in a house where, you know, whatever, you're in a left-leaning house with a right-leaning grandparent, you're going to watch your... You're, elders, parents and grandparents <laughs> arguing about this shit all the time and you're going to think you're going to go one of two ways you either think your mom and dad are numpties so you choose your grandparents side or you think your grandparents are old no fat and you don't want anything to do with them or you do what a lot of young people are doing and go piss off and am <laughs> yeah, to watch yeah, someone yeah. putting a water bottle on a ceiling fan so it smacks them in the head and yeah at least funny
0: that is funny. <laughs> put the, put the rubber funny. bands around a watermelon again. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so um, the counterpoint to that is the fact that the, the Reuters Institute studied there there hasn't been more. There hasn't been a market increase in polarization in four countries they studied in the last six years. So potentially we have reached the upper limit of that kind of polarization.
1: But can I just jump in? Peak polarization. By definition,
2: ah, that is the worst term I've heard.
1: Peak all year. Polarization, by definition, is 50 50, right? Yeah, we're there. Oh. Everything is 50 50 now, or 48 52.
0: Sick, sick to death of that proportion. Um, okay, right. Well, so moving on then. So, what impact is this going to have now on subscriptions? Because that's obviously where a lot of publishers are pinning their hopes, Esther. Is this is news avoidance a, a concern for publishers who are looking to buoy their subscription revenue?
2: I think that depends on what kind of publisher you are. Um, I mean, I know th- things like um, the the ones that have sort of done this, you know, you come to us once a day and you get your news update are, are still growing quite quickly. Yeah, so one of the things Nick Newman says is that there was this sort of breakout group of, he says, primar- primarily upmarket news publishers across the world, that it's, it, you know, New York Times, that are still reporting record subscription growth. Um, the report found that more broadly, because the interest in news and overall news consumption has declined considerably, they're going to expect that to have a knock-on impact on paid subscriptions sort of in the short mm. to medium term. Um, although he, th- they do also point out that that's still, um, I, I suppose the, the interest in news is still higher than pre-COVID. So there was a huge COVID bump. And yes, although that's declining, although people sort of switch off post that, it's st- you know, we're still in a better situation in terms of interest in news, than we were pre-COVID.
1: But is that, is that specifically paid?
2: So, so that's like interest in paying for news subscriptions rather than news avoidance, which is the, the other side of the coin. Okay.
0: Right, that's terrible. So, more... <laughs> so now we've got a, a pressure cooker situation where more people are taking their eyes off the pot and more people are constantly bombarding themselves with terrible, terrible news. This seems like a sustainable situation that we're all Pretty happy much. with.
1: <laughs> But I, I'd argue that's a little bit different because if you're paying for news, you're paying for. I'm, the average number of subscriptions is what two at most, maybe one.
0: Yeah, you get you so you're get those five your brand, users support, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: So if I'm if I'm paying the Guardian or I'm paying the Telegraph or I'm paying the Times or whatever, or Mail, Mail Plus, I'm getting news that I well arguably I'm getting news from a perspective that I want. So So it's it's not quite that bad, right? Fair enough. Fair
0: enough. enough. But what about when we're talking about maybe? What about when we're talking about the type of people who are paying for subscriptions? Because we were talking about young people before, and there's a scary, scary stat in there.
1: Well, yeah, the UK, the oldest, the the sorry, the average um, digital news subscriber in the UK is forty-seven, which by any measure is um, older. Uh, and only eight percent of new subscribers are under thirty. So yeah, absolutely. I
2: I I still think I know we have this conversation a lot when whenever the news report comes up, but it still feels like I, I do, why do we expect sort of you know twenty two yeah. year olds to be paying for news? It's it's, it's something that like grown ups do. There's
1: an econ- there is definitely an economic aspect to that. You if you're twenty two or twenty three, are you going to buy I don't avocados. know avocados, new trainers.
2: Or, or a Guardian subscription. And I think when they reach 35 or 45 or whatever, the priorities then shift when they want to become yeah. better informed about the world. Not I don't even necessarily kind of-
0: think it's that. I think it's economic pressures. Younger, younger people have few, less disposable income. It is, I mean, if you just look at the housing market, renting market, we are squeezing young people in this country to the point where if they can afford anything it will be a yeah. comfort it's not going to be <laughs> access to a health site yeah. that just gives you the worst news
2: until that generational spread of wealth shifts which is not going to do for mm. some time i don't i don't think it's a I don't think it's reflective of news published or news products that younger people aren't paying
1: yeah there's there's no news habit there either they're not you know younger people aren't used to paying for content full stop yeah and a lot of the world with content is pretty much free. True,
0: and if we're looking at kind of the um, where people choose to get their news, it it is those free sites. You know, we can we can argue about the veracity of news on social on all this kind of stuff forever, but yeah, people are habituated to getting news for free in these sources now. Now, there's I remember reading a study not too long ago that said that the people, the number of people who are getting news from social has dramatically fallen. The people who trust news in social has fallen as well, but the, it doesn't matter. Because the point is that that information is there and it is accessible. So you don't need, it's, it's hard to convince people to pay when the, the the price for news has been anchored at free for young people. So I don't know, do, do any of us have any solutions? <laughs> <laughs> have we, can we fix this?
2: Yes, actually. Um, I don't know if you've seen, I'm, I know we've put a note at the bottom, but it's a good time to mention it. Is um, Sean Wood, yeah. um, their, their yeah. team at Positive News. Um they've put out this big call off the back of it for an end to the what he says the bad news mm. bias. So his argument was basically that we need a solution focused approach with and putting that more prominently in journalism. So and, and this has been positive News' angle for Not quite a long, long time, long. is that you can report on progress as well as problems. So you're then keeping people informed and engaged without that constant like negative impact on people's wellbeing. So it's sort of you know I know for news publishers it's always the bad news that gets the clicks and well, uh, that's that's been true since the history of of news you know, it was the mm. bad news sells covers and papers but if you want to bring people yeah. back we're going to have to look at the you know the the mental health of people first and actually start bringing more solutions and more more positive news into the news I think that's the,
0: that's the difference though it's it's solutions based it's not positive because when we look at you know the outlets that have tried to launch with a solely positive spin the new day a bunch of the kind of the the us regional titles tried something similar with very positive news it failed people don't want that but solutions focused that might be it
1: yeah the the positive news is is a sell line the actual the actual point of what positive news is doing is looking at stories more rigorously not just picking the Outrage headline yeah. and going in and saying, Yeah, here's yeah, this is bad, but look at this good thing that happened. There. It's not about it's not happy clapping. No, it's, uh, it's I mean, a slightly different thing.
0: they're all about moving from uh, if it bleeds, it leads to if it bleeds, <laughs> fucking stop it bleeding, <laughs> and here's how
1: get a bandage. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a, a evolutionary thing, you know. Human beings are actually evolved. To look first at bad news, it's a survival instinct.
0: Yeah, it's like elephant graveyards, right? If an if an elephant walks through a uh, past an elephant skull, it will avoid it. It will look at it, it will examine it, and then it will move the fuck away from that area. And that is. Uh,
2: but I think the thing is, it's it's gone from we seek out the bad headlines as a as a safety thing. To now we're just avoiding them yeah. as a as a protectionist thing. But I, I think there's solutions to journalism often comes up and um, talks about the climate mm. crisis. And the reporting around that and, and people saying it's no longer enough just to say the world's getting worse. You know, we're, we're cooking ourselves, essentially. You need to have the solutions. What can we do about it? What, you know, what in terms of policy, technology, there's all this stuff, which I'm going to now hand over to you, Chris. I Esther,
0: have... perfect segue, perfect segue. So, yeah, um, I was really, really pleased to see that the report this year has actually broken out a section about climate journalism. Um, obviously we've had Wolfgang Blau arguing that this needs to be a I suppose a a horizontal rather than a vertical it needs to run through absolutely all aspects of reporting so it's really good to see that um, Reuters has picked this out of, of being not just of interest to audiences but of interest to publishers as well and something that a growing number of news consumers aren't avoiding thank god is climate change coverage so the report breaks out the proportion of audience members per country who are actively interested in news of this type and it's it's kind of encouraging, I guess, both for business models and for the planet. Um, You'll be surprised to learn that interest in climate change news is highest in Latin America countries. You know, the people who are most exposed to this to some extent. Uh, over half respondents in Greece, Portugal, Chile, and the Philippines say they're interested in it. Um, going back to that polarisation point, though, um, interest is lower in the northern and western European markets, um, in part because those are where, climate change is still a polarised topic. So that feeds back into that news avoidance thing. Um, so I don't know, we, we've spoken on the podcast before about climate verticals. This to me seems almost a vindication of that strategy, that there is a growing number of people who are interested in this and presumably will actually pay for some expert insight.
2: There was, there was something interesting that you you picked out of this about the fact that actually older audiences seem interested in I think the stereotype is often that the older people don't mm. care so much about the climate, but actually... That's not what the evidence is showing. No, not at all. Right? It's
0: in fact, yeah, the older audiences, per the Reuters report, are finding that their older audiences are the most um, invested
1: in this. What's the definition of older, though? Because I can imagine there's like a bell curve there mm. where young people are really interested, uh, middle-aged people, people in the sort of thirties through late fifties maybe are not quite so interested. Yeah. And then, as you move into retirement with grandkids, you become really, really interested again.
0: Anyway, yeah, so that's that's what I was uh, that's what I was most interested in. And talking about younger people, Peter, you have some news from social.
1: Yeah, I think this is a breakout uh, essay around younger people, um, Gen, Gen Z specifically. <laughs> I find this fascinating, but worrying in equal measure because uh, I kind of, I'm I'm moving into that older. Are already in that older demographic, and I worry about the youngsters, I worry about kids. Mm. Um, so on social, Facebook is in decline for news, good, uh, except maybe Esther in local news groups, um, which I have all sorts of views about, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, Instagram, TikTok, Telegram, I don't know in about, but they're all seeing growth um video is not so popular for news all age groups over 25 prefer text because it's quicker you've got more control of what's going on but gen z however you define that is <laughs> all about the tech talk. um Uh, you know 18 if you look at 18 to 24 year olds 40 percent of them are using tiktok 15 percent of them are using them for new using it for news now that's really interesting to me this is a fascinating bit
0: what's so interesting why why did that bait why did that did that book your expectations
1: well yeah because it's grown from three percent just two years ago to 15 percent now
2: but is that not part of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if like two years ago, publishers weren't on TikTok. Any, anybody with a reliable news outlook wasn't on TikTok. I mean, they've gone where the audience is, and as a result, more audiences are watching what they're producing.
1: And that's good news because if people like, so the Washington Post, TikTok guy, BBC, Sky has a million followers on TikTok, Sky News, which grew insanely around the Ukraine war. Mm.
2: I mean, the the BBC said in January that they weren't going to go on TikTok because they were a serious news org. They were on TikTok (laughs) eight weeks later.
1: And that's good news that that audience is growing and paying attention to news because these publishers or broadcasters are actually, like you said, they're going where the audience is, but also they're using the platform the way it is naturally used. Like the Washington Post TikTok guy is absolutely worth checking out. He's, he definitely is because he just he plays the game perfectly. Mm. Serious news stories presented in a TikTok way. The big worry is that there's so much entertainment content on TikTok that it just swamps news content. And if that means that the youngest generation has no real sense of what's going on, that's a big problem. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. I have uh I have a 13 year old step-granddaughter um, and she is ridiculously clued up as what's going mm. on. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you can make the assumption that just because people are on TikTok watching people dance silly, that they haven't got a clue what's going on. Yeah, but on. people
0: never said that about TV, did they? People were never like, oh, you know, there's, there's comedy on Channel 4, therefore people won't use it for, mm. people won't check out news briefings. I think it's a balanced
1: PM. thing though, Chris. Mm. You know, look, think of that feed. It's 90% daft shit.
2: (laughs) But this, I mean, it's like Troy Young was talking about this, wasn't he, with the the grinder where everything just goes in the grinder and it all just comes out, like all the news, all the entertainment, like it just all mixes up. Um, But that actually, that does remind me of a piece I saw um, Taylor Lorenz wrote for the Washington Post a a week or two ago after the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Oh,
0: that was great. Yeah, that was such a well-argued piece. That
2: worried me, more, like along these lines, that because you've got all these people that were sort of leaning into the trial. You've got everything from like traditionally beauty influencers, gamers, everybody suddenly realizing that if they did like a snap piece commenting on the trial that actually, you know, they, they'd rack up like 15, 20 times the number of views they normally would. Um, or they, you know, they go viral. And and there's a lot of these sort of influences in, in yeah. completely in areas, completely unrelated to the news are suddenly realizing if they start commenting on news situations um, and lean into that, that can, um, that can really help well that can really help their viewership and that to me is really that quite that concerning. goes back to
0: exactly what we were saying before about the economies of well digital ecosystems now where outrage gets you attention and we saw that with you know digital publications mm. first the you know your mail online so they really leaned into that and now it's down to the individual level um that i think that the the yep. Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial was a perfect example of that because it didn't matter what side you took on the discussion, as long as you were picking the side and take, taking the most extreme one. Yeah. I saw some fucker um, saying, oh, look, Amber Heard's just so obsessed with Johnny Depp. And then somebody took a screenshot of his YouTube channel. And it was, I'm not even kidding you, like 360 <laughs> videos just of him pillorying Amber Heard, just but A, apathetic and B, that's just what gets attention.
2: But this is, I mean, this, this is one of Tellerrand's points is that, is that they're, they're just, they're not leaning into angles they even believe in. They're going with the angle that they think is going to get the most outrage yep. from most views. Really? No, that like, obviously, because they
1: Who's ever done that before? <laughs> well, what the report says about this is that um younger people, and this, this kind of Gen Z, again, however you define that, this younger demographic, will seek out diverse voices. Excellent. We're all for diverse voices. But... They're less in, they're less concerned about impartiality. That's not good, mm. and more comfortable with mm. journalists or influencers expressing opinions on social media. And you know with that that Amber Heard Johnny Depp thing, which I know bollocks all about, um, but it seems to be a great example of the kind of harm that can be done by dickheads looking for clicks. Yep, dicks and clicks. Dicks and clicks, baby. Uh, I mean, my so just wrapping this up. My big thing is that with younger people not having an established news context, mm. then it really is up to publishers like the Washington Post and BBC, God love them, and Sky and whoever else to properly get in that space and you know compete properly with the with the daft dancing videos and really do a job. There you go. There's solutions journalism for you right there.
0: I do, I do want to say as well. I don't think that. Any of us is thinking that this is a um, a sort of a weakness inherent to younger people. This would have happened to any generation of people for whom, you know, the tick- TikTok had emerged. This isn't a, a moral failing on behalf of young people. This nope. is the ecosystem that they've grown up in. Okay, Esther, why don't you, uh, why don't you bring us home with uh, what I actually thought was a really interesting one. If I hadn't picked climate change, I would have picked this one because this is uh, some fascinating little stats around this.
2: I mean, mine all now seems really trivial in comparison to like climate change and the fact that the younger generation. Are, um...
0: But it's not because this is how people are getting news and information across.
2: Mine is actually about email newsletters, so um, they've actually dedicated entire chapters in the in the Reuters news report. So I'd, I'd really recommend giving it a read. Um, and I was really interested in this because I know we within the media industry, newsletters are like really, really overhyped. And uh, media posted a stat a while back that said that suggested that normal people are actually kind of less interested than the rest of us mm. thought they were. Um, and actually, that's basically born out to be true. Um, so uh, 17% of people on average access news via email. That's a lot lower than I thought. Austria is highest. They've got about 25% of people access it. Um, the UK is the lowest, with only 9% of people accessing news via email. Is, did that surprise you guys? Uh,
0: not so much. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we, it does. Well, I, I thought we were going to reach that point. <laughs> I just don't know that it was going to be...
1: Now, No, I would have thought it was higher than that. I mean, you're right, Esther. As a you know, civilians compared to odds weirdos. <laughs> um. <laughs> I yeah. And again, you know, when I think about it, if I compare actual news to industry news, mm.
2: uh,
1: I get way more industry newsletters than I do actual newsletters. I think the only one I get is is actually the Guardian's daily newsletters
2: yeah you know, i say i'm surprised i don't get a single news newsletter. So.
1: <laughs> yeah i think that's the difference. if you if you think about it as industry news then wow mm. but if you think about it as proper news
2: but i think the the report basically said that uh, the people that email is particularly used by is unsurprisingly older richer and more educated news consumers and yeah, in uh, in the US particularly, it's about 15% of over 55s in the US use email, but that drops to 3% of 18 mm. to 24s. Again, do we need to worry about young people? <laughs> Except actually, again, when I, I think back to sort of when I was um, between 18 and 24, and email, I didn't really use email, whereas now I use it every single day. So I again, I don't know if that's a maturity thing. And will people use email more as they grow up? Mm. I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> as soon as they're forced into using it for work, they'll go, ah, fuck it, fine, I'll <laughs> sign up for stuff.
1: I wonder how that works for the idea of using emails as universal identifier. Yeah, he said, from an ad tech perspective,
0: that is an interesting one. Uh, I think you've, you've probably got to keep it separate, just in terms of data protection and people, how people yeah. actually choose to identify themselves and what they use that information for. Probably it's going to be separate. But this this next stat, Esther, about what people are signed up to, I think is absolutely fascinating. The proportion of people who listen who get there newsletters from news brands versus from individuals i think is absolutely fascinating
2: yeah and again i think it's one of those examples where actually kind of the media hype bubble is Mm. way um way out of what actual reality is um so individual journalists um and again this is this is just in the news industry this isn't sort of b2b journalists um but they're actually incredible the subscriptions to them are incredibly low when compared to well-known news brands um possibly not a surprise Given that Substack's only actually got a million subscribers, are paying subscribers. Um, but the US, again, the US market, which is the the leader in this, seven um, percent of people who subscribe to a news service pay for journalist emails, and that's one percent of the total overall sample, which is really mm. low. Um is it low? especially given that you know the US is supposed to be the market leader in that. And the US is has got um, five times more people paying for news from email uh, individual email journal, uh, individual journalists than the UK so yeah the UK doesn't even register as a blip on the chart
1: this is quite a new thing though I'm not I don't, I'm not surprised by it. yeah
2: but when, when people talk yeah. about peak substack and how you know are we at peak news a peak individual newsletter like I would personally see this as there's still an awful lot oh, of mileage to. in this format.
0: That's ridiculous. I'll with that.
2: Like like podcasts, you know, there's a long way to go. So
0: one million subscribers for a Substack, seventeen million subscribers to the New York Times' newsletters alone. That is ridiculous. I just wrote a piece for DCN yeah, about this. Paid. They're not paid, but there is still you know that's they're looking to convert X number of that, and I think they are already pushing it. That's insanity. And if you look last year, it was Mail Magazine launched three paid-for newsletters. They wanted to get 10,000 subscribers. That is, on the face of it, such a low number. But as we've said, if you're getting that many people and you have a cost base that supports that, that's really good news. And like you said, that there is enough headroom, I think, works for news organizations, potentially more than it does for individual journalist newsletters, because they're going to be so much more exposed to... Just
1: another revenue... Stream. You don't need to rest your whole business. No, 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 totally not. Uh, and I think you've seen this already. You've seen this in strategies developing it, like at the Guardian, where they've changed their newsletter strategy. It's not about clicking through to the website anymore. It's about staying in the actual inbox mm. and personality-led newsletters rather than curated collections of, of pieces from the website or wherever. Yeah. You're seeing that it's come through in different people's strategies, but it's really early in the game.
2: I mean, isn't there a sort of, there's a thing here about about the type of people you're reaching as well, because if, you know, the report says that because email is mainly older, richer, more educated news consumers, it's, a lot of publishers still do free newsletters and it's, it's it seems to be an obvious way to reach um, people who, who might not be so engaged with the news, but they're not picking it up. So is there an opportunity there or is that actually a, an area of concern that email is just being targeted to Educated news consumers. Yeah, no, that's,
0: that's a problem news <laughs> yeah. still start. Um, Interesting that we, we haven't mentioned ad-supported newsletters here, which do tend to be, I think, the most popular format for monetizing newsletters. And When I was talking to Neil um, from Morning Brew last week, he was basically saying, yeah, there's an awful lot of headroom here, there's a lot of experimentation going on, but he thinks that the ad model for newsletters is really, really effective. So while we're talking about paid subscriptions, that's not necessarily how... A lot of the news organisations are going to fund their newsletters from now on, mm-hmm. um, but like I'll
1: as you, definitely do
0: as you've said, Esther, it is it is about whether we can broaden out that appeal of newsletters to people who don't typically fit that mould, which will then obviously have a rising it's a rising tide impact on right. the advertisers that can get involved and who they can yeah. advertise to. So it's a it's a commercial imperative as well as a moral one to actually broaden that audience
2: out. Yeah, I mean, I mean, re- reading through this. The big takeaway I got was that, that, I mean, there's there's a lot of opportunity here. It's, yes, it's an old format. Yes, it's been around for a long time. But, you know, if you can use it in ways to reach people that aren't necessarily the obvious target market for this, it, there's a huge, huge group of people that, that you could serve.
0: Quick, end the episode there on a positive note.
1: <laughs> hmm. Actually, we can end it on an even more positive note. There's an excellent piece from Damien Radcliffe Friend of media Digital boxes. Content Next. Yep, he's up for a badge. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, Damien's stuff, the rigour at Damien's stuff is always amazing. Um, But he's focused on four big themes in the report, reaching younger audiences, addressing issues and news, avoidance, showing you've effective first-party data. We didn't even talk about data. And the need for revenue diversification, which we talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the the nice thing about what Damien's doing is he, he raises the issue. But, as always, with the solutions focus... He points to the potential actions that are highlighted in the reports. And it's just a really nice, manageable piece.
0: It really is. And he's got some sort of um, unique insight in there from Nick Newman, who's co-author of the report, yeah. which I think is, there's so much, as, as um, in-depth as the report is, there is, you know, stuff that they obviously couldn't fit in. I think Nick picks apart some of those ideas in the piece as well. Definitely, definitely worth your time to read.
2: And after all that talk of newsletters, if you are a person who likes newsletters, or you think you might like newsletters, we have a daily newsletter that brings you just the top four media and publishing stories from that day, no more, no less. Um, Plus, I suppose, our individual (laughs) take on those stories. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if you you want that in your inbox, you can sign up to that at voices.media and um, yeah, enjoy us in your inbox every morning.
1: And if you wanted to advertise in that newsletter, just give us a shout, let us know, we're open to that.
0: But while you are signing up to the newsletter by going to voice.media, please do head across to voice.media/support if you can. Kick us a couple of quid. We always really appreciate it. You too could be a friend of Media Voices. But there is also our vast repository of transcripts we've done for all our past episodes on there. So it's really worth checking out, even if you don't fancy you know, listening to the latest episode just because you can go back and read insight, read our predictions from a couple of years ago and see how they fared. But... We hope you've enjoyed this ever so slightly different episode of Media Voices. Um, it's, I suppose, something that we should probably do regularly is take an in-depth look at one particular report or one particular topic. So it'd be interesting to hear what the listeners think about this.
1: Unless you hate it. <laughs> yeah.
2: You can get all three of us on news at voices.media.
0: Perfect. But until next week, when oh, we'll be back got, with...
1: I've, I've got the perfect way to end this episode. The perfect way to end this episode. Do it guess what that is
0: what the can-can
1: it's the can-can. 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 can-can
0: okay so Peter is sacked from Media Voices so come back next week uh, where it'll be me, Esther and our brand new host who'll be taking a tour through all the news and the views from the media world
1: he'll be pasty and white because <laughs> they haven't been to Cannes
0: but until next week when we'll be back thank you so much for listening and do stay safe, goodbye